welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today we'll be discussing how to find empathy for deeply unreasonable people who are totally wrong, how to manage rage and anxiety about America's car culture, and how to reach out to support a friend without being a, quote, cringy white person. My guest today is the cultural critic, DJ, and video producer, Jay Smooth. He is the creator of the video blog, Ill Doctrine, and the founder of New York's longest-running hip-hop radio show, Underground Railroad. He's also the host of the podcast, Think Twice, Michael Jackson. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hello, hello. Such an honor to be here. Thank you for bringing me on. I'm so happy to have you here. And before we get started, I would love to ask you for one piece of unsolicited advice. Oh, man, I, I'm a notorious hater of unsolicited advice. I don't know. If it's permission. The, uh, yeah, I, it might just be the only child syndrome, but I, I'm best known by a lot of people for my YouTube videos before life took me away from that. And uh, as I'm starting to dip my toes into that again, I'm realizing how important I think it is, at least for creative stuff, to just figure out what you're trying to do by doing it. I'm, mm. I'm very susceptible to wanting to know exactly what my master plan is before I start doing something. And I'm realizing once again, I'm relearning that that just doesn't work. There's just so many unknown unknowns that you're not gonna realize you need to figure out until you jump in the double Dutch rope. So I, I would encourage people to just start doing whatever they're going to do. That is so true. I'm someone who had spent 10 years planning and outlining something before actually doing it um, yeah. and would probably never actually start things if I didn't have deadlines. So good advice. Jay and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Jay Smooth. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled, Ready to Shift Gears. I grew up in countries with robust transit and pedestrian culture. I, 3-6 female, begrudgingly moved to the U.S. with my American husband seven years ago and have since lived in cities on both coasts that claim to be, but are not, friendly to active transport. We've owned one car for some of that time, but walk or bike everywhere we can at least once a day. I'm horrified by the blasé nature with which people wield their cars as murder weapons here and the dangerous infrastructure. I've been nearly hit by cars while pushing my baby in a stroller more times than I can count. Don't even get me started on the size of vehicles exacerbating this. We were intentionally smashed into, in a car, and run off a highway by a semi-truck for going exactly the speed limit in the right-hand lane. I find myself pleading in tears with other drivers to just obey the traffic laws. Recently, my sister-in-law drove over 90 miles per hour on a 65 road while checking her phone 
And my husband chastised me for making a scene and asking to pull over so I could take a taxi after she refused to slow down. Now that I have two young children, the traffic violence has become unbearable. Every time I have to be in a car, I spend the time angry and fearing for our lives, even though I now avoid highways altogether. I'm on high alert when walking, and I've stopped biking on anything but bike paths. And it's socially isolating to be mostly trapped in my home unless I agreed again to a vehicle. I'm from a social culture that values being out in public space. I am not being irrational and fearing the danger of cars. Statistics on this plague are pretty clear on that. But how do I stop spiraling about this? I know this is tied up with my general mistrust for the U.S., Fear of shootings, lack of social life, casual violence in media, erratic behavior of people in public. I don't have anxiety or fixate on things in other aspects of life, and I tried therapy for two years trying to address this to no avail. I'm seriously considering permanently moving out of the U.S. this year, largely due to this issue, though this would be complicated for my husband. Help. So I find this letter so hard because I don't think the letter writer is wrong. Right. I agree with her that she's not being irrational, especially as a very nervous driver myself. I'm someone who, every time I get behind the wheel, I'm very aware that I'm in this big machine that could kill someone if I space out for 10 seconds. That's exactly what my father was like, and he just stopped driving because of it. Yeah. I mean, I've been able to push through it, but... It's always on my mind. Like, I'm not relaxed if I'm driving ever. Also, I remember listening to an episode of The Daily recently about all the the huge number of passenger deaths in America and all the unique things about America that lead to that. So she's on to something. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of those New Yorkers who never even learned to drive or got really? a driver's license. So I'm I'm a pretty easy recruit for the cars are actually bad revolution. I'm sympathetic to what she's saying. Cars are unhealthy for us when they hit us, when they hit each other, they make it harder for us to breathe. The automobile industrial complex has such an outsized influence on so much policy and urban planning, just how our living spaces are arranged. And that influence is hardly ever good for anyone except the people who make money from us all being dependent on these cars. So I I'm sympathetic to that, but I also Mm -hmm. feel like she's trying to set the bar at a place that that might not be tenable. Well, yeah, it's really high drama, right? Right. There are a lot of things in life that are scary and that you could worry about all day and that you could plan your life around avoiding if you chose to. So you could obsess over um, not exposing yourself to anything that would give you cancer. She mentioned school shootings. You know, you could live your life not wanting to go anywhere in public because there could be a mass shooting anywhere. I get a lot of letters from people who I feel are so obsessed with preventing their partners from falling out of love with them or cheating or leaving them that it completely stops them from enjoying the relationship. So I think there's a point where you're right that something terrible could happen, but do you want to be miserable every day or do you want to just live your life and do your best to avoid it? And if it happens, hate to say it, but it happens. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like that just has to be the answer. I mean, I don't I would need to know much more about their family circumstance to gauge whether moving out of the country as a result of these concerns is in any way feasible. But uh, I can't imagine there's any literal utopia out there where you wouldn't be able to have similar concerns about some other issue. I think you got to just make peace with living in somewhat of a dystopia out here in 2024. Do you know what I think the real issue is? 
I don't think she wants to live here. I think yeah. she just doesn't <laughs> like America. But, so these are the parts of the letter that jump out at me. She begrudgingly moved here. Mm. Quote, I know this is tied up with my general mistrust for the U.S. I'm yeah. seriously considering moving. This person does not want to be in this country for a lot of reasons, which I'm sure tons of them are super legitimate. And I think all of that frustration, all of that anxiety, all of that bitterness has been sort of focused on the car issue because it's something concrete where you can pull out right. stats and there's a direct threat to people's lives. So nobody can get mad at you for complaining about it. But I think the fact is she just does not want to live here. Yeah. You know, I'm learning that going over these questions for today, that the real answer often lies within the little tangents mm -hmm. and asides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. She says therapy didn't work. New therapist. This is really the kind of thing a good therapist would really specialize in, yeah. really be able to help yeah, you through. Yeah, for sure. She says, I don't have anxiety or fixate on things in other aspects of my life. In my notes, I wrote, really? <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know. <laughs> just something about the intensity with which this was written just made me question that. But again, if you're telling the truth about that, then again, I think this isn't about your anxiety. It's about the fact that you don't want to be in this country and you've stuffed all those feelings down because you're here for your husband and you feel stuck and it's making you feel panicked and you're putting all that panic on automobiles. I, yeah, I think it's the underlying stuff. Yeah, for sure. So on a practical note, new therapist, give it a try. And I also wonder whether before leaving the country, I wonder if before thinking about that move, since this is such a big issue that's taking such a toll on your life, could you try to move to somewhere that's extremely walkable and safe? Right. I don't know that it will be the exact same of whatever like European paradise you came from, but there are places where you don't have to drive a lot. You don't have to walk across like a four lane road to get to where you're going. If this is stopping you from enjoying your life day to day, I think it's worth looking into whether there's somewhere in this country where you could be reasonably happy and feel reasonably safe. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, assuming you're in a position to keep browsing around for the best place, which is a big if financially, there's always going to be, you know, my girlfriend moved out to Los Angeles and the quality of life, both for her and for me visiting has changed drastically when she moved just from Culver City to Koreatown, mm. which is a much more walkable and, and, and sort of New Yorker friendly area. So there's, mm -hmm. there, there's definitely ways to mitigate that if you're in a position, if you're lucky enough to do so. Yeah, there might be options. And in the meantime, I know this is a big ask and it's easier said than done, but try not to transfer this anxiety to your children. Yes. They're going to pick up on all of this, the fights you're having, you're getting out of cars, getting in taxis, not driving on highways. If there's any way to sort of conceal this from them, I think you would be doing them a really, really huge favor because seeing the world in this way, even though, again, it's not delusional, it's based in some reality. Um, as you know, it's a really, really, really hard way to live. And I would hate for them to to absorb that and have it get in the way of their ability to enjoy life. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Our next question is titled Don Juan's Dilemma. I've recently discovered that I've fathered a child and I'm struggling to decide how much of the world I need to tell about this. I'm single, other than occasionally dating the child's mother, and I do provide financial support to her. But if I keep this child a secret from my family and friends, does that make me a bad person? What are the things I should consider as I decide who to tell about this, if anyone? I never wanted children, and here I am in my early 50s with one by accident. I'm ashamed to admit that I'm afraid of the ridicule from my friends and 
perhaps family too, about being a lifelong Lothario who finally slipped up and got a girl pregnant and now has a child. My first thought was, you're not 14. I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> you're an adult. This isn't a scandal. Yeah, it's, it's such a strange way of uh, speaking about this development in your life to me. Like, there's right. a whole human being that exists in the world, and you're worried about how the middle-aged Lothario's Guild that apparently makes up your friend group is going to feel about this news. I, I don't feel like that should be the priority. I can't imagine them actually ridiculing him. Can you imagine right. someone saying, oh, I, you know, this was unexpected and I didn't plan it, but um, so-and-so who I'm dating had a baby, so welcome to our new blessing. Nobody's going to be like, you had a baby? Guess your days of fun are over. Guess you made a mistake. What's wrong <laughs> with you? Once a baby exists, it doesn't matter who has it or how it got there. People only care about the baby, and it's a good thing. Right, I would hope. Otherwise, seeking a new circle of friends would be, uh, you know, one secondary or tertiary priority <laughs> I would throw in the mix. But, it, but I mean, I have a lot of questions about this. If I'm reading this correctly, he says he's still occasionally dating the child's mother. So he's maintaining some kind of presence in the mother's life. Right. But he only refers to financial support. Is he trying to stay in the mother's life, but not in his son's life? Like just logistically, what are the parameters of that? So yeah, the child is almost totally absent from this letter and his relationship with the child, which is probably the touchiest and most emotional thing here is not even mentioned. Right. That's what I found a little bit troubling. I, I went back and reread it and I saw, okay, there's financial support and you maybe are dating her present tense, hard to tell. Right. But are you co-parenting? Are you spending time with the child? Is the plan for the child to know who you are? My guess is that he's still in the mindset that he's just providing financial support and is not going to really play a fatherly role. And I think that's where the shame is. Yeah. That's really probably what he doesn't want people to know because that doesn't feel good. And I think you should step up and be a dad. What else are you going to do? You're 50 years old. You've had tons of time to have fun and do whatever you want. Be a dad. Right. This seems to me like another case of the question not really being the question. If you had figured out within yourself how you feel about this development in your life, mm. you wouldn't care this much about how your friends are going to react right. to it. If you're coming to your friends feeling ashamed, you're going to feel ashamed talking to them right. about it. If you are at peace with this, you're going to be at peace with it and, you know, tell your friends to go jump in a lake if they make fun of you. So I, I think, you know, there's some work that needs to be done before you go talk to your right. friends. And actually, I'm second guessing myself now because I'm saying be a dad, be in the kid's life. But I guess mm. I would I would add, if you truly are someone who's never wanted kids and seeing this live baby who you fathered didn't change your opinion about wanting kids, I'm trying to look at it from the baby's perspective. Would you want yeah. that person in your life? Someone right. who was kind of upset by your existence and didn't feel any real attachment to you? Uh, I guess it's just hard for me to imagine. And I, I just want to think that once he spends some time around this baby, he's going to feel something and he's going to want to be there. But I guess I have to say, if you really don't, if you completely feel detached and you truly feel in your heart, this was a mistake, keep your distance completely. Don't be in and out. I'm like the weird guy who visits every once in a while. Stop dating the mom, send the check and keep your distance. Yeah, I mean, if if you're able to really reckon with this and come to the conclusion that you're not up for it, it might be the best decision to follow that instinct. But it doesn't sound like he's done that work. Yeah, yet. It's, it's just so interesting. Who has a child and is like, what will my friends think? 
rather than yeah, I mean, <laughs> what does it mean for me to be a dad? You know, that's sort of this right. huge question that's missing from the whole thing. I would say as you figure that out, um, tell your friends. Just tell your friends. Yeah. Your line is, you know, life took a turn I didn't expect. This woman I was seeing became pregnant. Um, luckily, we get along. We have good communication. We're figuring things out together. Everyone's going to give you so much encouragement and positive feedback that it might actually change the trajectory of your relationship with um, this kid and the idea of being a father. You're an adult. It's okay to have a child. It's great to have a child. You can turn this into a positive. I think people are going to surprise you and be much more supportive and much less judgmental than you expect. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show, and when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Jay Smooth. Our next question is titled, Empathy Friend. My basic question is, how do I respond when friends relate to me situations that are, from their point of view, obviously terrible, when in reality, my friends are being unreasonable? I have a friend that I have known ever since I moved to the city about 20 years ago. When I met them, they were married, they got divorced, remarried, had children, and now they are in a really unhappy marriage. When we hang out, they try really hard not to vent about their partner, but eventually we get to a point in the conversation when the beefs come out. The thing is, many of the beefs are kind of crazy. As an example, the partner asked my friend what they and the kids would like to do on spring break. This was taken as an egregious thing for a parent and spouse to ask because they should know what the family would want to do. I know they hate their partner at this point in the marriage, and they are staying together to keep an enormous roof over their heads, house poor and in an expensive city, and to maintain some semblance of normalcy for the kids, but to be totally bent out of shape about asking about spring break? What? I try to be empathetic and listen, but sometimes I just want to be like, girl, you live in a mansion and your spouse seems to really care. I know they can be an asshole, but geez, give them a break. I am more or less looking for confirmation that I should nod with a sad face, say, that must be hard for you, and order us a glass of wine. What would you do, Prudy? I can pretty much give confirmation of that. My general rule is that unless you're dealing with an extreme situation in which a friend is hurting themselves or is at risk of getting hurt by someone else, like physically or in a really serious way, just take their point of view and support them. Mirror what they're saying. There's something you can find to agree with. It takes nothing. You don't have to talk your friends out of the way they're feeling. That's, in my opinion, not what friends are for. Yeah, you know, my friend has a saying, uh, validate the valid mm. uh, when you're in a situation like that. Find whatever's in there that you can genuinely tap into. There's always going to be something there you can tap into to maintain a sympathetic ear. There's a lot of the valid to grab onto here. Right. And, and I think going by their accounting of it, they seem to have an impression that it is a really unhappy marriage. So if that's your general impression, but the specific grievances your friend is bringing seem sort of flimsy or unreasonable, that says to me that there are deeper issues here that your friend isn't ready to articulate yet mm. or hasn't put their finger on yet in a way that they're ready to talk about it. So... I would think of it as uh, 
I'm here to be a sympathetic ear, not really for the specifics, but for that energy underneath it that they need to release. Like that's, these specifics are just a vessel for something they don't know how to get directly at yet. So just, just be here to absorb that for them. Absolutely. Now, one caveat, my advice about just kind of supporting your friends through whatever, which your friend said so much more succinctly with validate the valid, it kind of relies on you actually really liking the friend. I was going to say that. How high are they yeah. on your hierarchy of right. friends? And yeah. like, do you actually hold them in high regard? Do you right. actually have respect for this person? And there are some hints in this letter that make me think the letter writer is a little judgmental of the friend You're ordering right. on I don't want to go as far as saying disliking but sort of the accounting of they're married they got divorced they got remarried yeah. they had children yeah. they have crazy beefs there's a sense that the friend is unappreciative of what they have in life and sort of doesn't have perspective doesn't have gratitude is being too hard on their spouse. So this is a question you can only ask yourself, letter writer, but do you like this person and the way they move through the world? Right. Do you think they're a good person? Do you respect them? That question was uh, jumping out at me as I read through this. You're right. I think there are times that we are venting in a way that eases a burden for us once we're done. And sometimes we'll be venting in a way that it's just a feedback loop that's making us feel worse mm -hmm. and worse, but we can't get ourselves out of it. So it just keeps going. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound to me like that's where her friend is since they said they try to resist getting into it and then it finally comes out. But if it's the latter, I'd be a little more proactive looking for ways to kind of snap them out of it or think about it differently. If it really does seem to be therapeutic on some level to let this stuff out, I, you know, I would try to absorb it if the friendship feels worth it. Right. And feel free to, to vent about your own stuff. Letter writer, I, I'm sure you have situations in your life that are sort of ongoing and frustrating where you could possibly be making better decisions, but they're making you miserable regardless. You can use your friend as a sounding board the same way your friend is using you. And yeah. I wonder if that might make the relationship feel less burdensome. Yeah, if you're yeah, getting yeah. support for your semi-irrational, not totally evolved stuff, maybe you'll feel more generous when it comes to giving support to your friends. So you don't want it to be one-sided. You're not just the therapist and they're the complainer. You two are supposed to be supporting each other. And for that to happen, you have to be vulnerable too. Yeah, I think having a feeling of reciprocity would probably go a long way. Yeah, Exactly. So find some stuff to complain about. Next time you get together with this person, have a list. Say, there's a few things that are bothering me that I just want to get off my chest. And, you know, take over half of dinner with that and you might end up feeling better. Yeah. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Jay and I are about to tackle our last question for the day. Jay, are you ready for this letter? I hope so. <laughs> this letter is titled, In Awkward Solidarity. I grew up in an area of the country with a high Arab population and was close friends with several people from the countries being bombed by the current U.S.-funded war. We've naturally lost touch over the near 20 years since high school, but our social media acquaintances. 
I'm devastated daily by this and can't imagine what they're going through. I was wondering about your opinion on reaching out to these old friends, just telling them I'm thinking about them, care about them, and can offer support if it's needed. It's possible I'm overthinking this, but I'd love a script or some guidance on how to reach out if it's even a good idea without being a cringy white person making it about her feelings. I'm willing to let you have this letter if you want to use it for your video series, because I feel like it's (laughs) absolutely perfect material for the kind of thing you would talk about and that people could really benefit from hearing from you. So I almost want to turn it over to you completely. But first of all, I just want to acknowledge that my favorite genre of letter writer is the thoughtful person with pure intentions who is so pure and thoughtful that they're obsessing about whether they're going to unintentionally harm someone in the course of just being a nice person. Some may call it liberal hand-wringing. I call it trying to be decent in a shitty world. Yeah. And I think we need more of it, and I'm all for it. So I take this dilemma seriously. No, yeah, I agree. I definitely want to resist the urge to sort of uh, make fun of the overly earnest white person. You know, I think out of all the possibilities, being somewhat cringily earnest is not the worst outcome by any means. Exactly. I would say if you are social media acquaintances, I guess I'd want to know, does that mean You are actively commenting and liking each other's posts and knowing what's going on in each other's lives? Or is this one of those, we friended each other because we went to high school Mm -hmm. together, but I have no idea what they're up to. If you're paying attention to each other's feeds, I would say, look and see what they've been saying Mm. about the situation. Mm -hmm. And you can use that as a starting point to build a conversation. You know, you can comment. If they have a recent post, comment on that Mm -hmm. and then... You could follow up with a DM saying, you know, I've been thinking about you and so on. And then it won't be completely out of nowhere. Like, hey, my Arab yeah. friend, I just I remember it. I went to high school to you and I, I, I'm, you're, you're just on my mind with these current issues. <laughs> I just want you to know. Exactly. That's such a good idea to sort of look for a way to take their lead by seeing what they've said and responding. I didn't think of that. My first thought was that we've just got to start with the fact that there's not going to be a rule for this that guarantees everyone receives your reach out well, because everyone's different. Everyone has a different personality. Everyone has a different sensibility. Some of your friends might be absolutely touched and moved and encouraged if you were to reach out. Some might be confused and annoyed, like, oh, great, now I have to respond and reassure this person that I'm okay. I don't remember them from high school. Doesn't it remind you of how in 2020 height of BLM, around the time all the brands were posting a black square on their Instagram to show solidarity. (laughs) I felt so bad for white people at the time. I mean, this wasn't my primary (laughs) concern, but I felt bad for white people at the time because I felt like the messages were so conflicting. On the one hand, people were going, check on your black friends. If you're not checking on your black friends, you don't care. Why haven't I heard from any of my white friends about this? And other people were going, stop reaching out and dumping your emotions on your black friends. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to deal with you and you're giving me emotional labor. And I was just thinking, damn, I wouldn't know what to do. And the answer is you can't reach for this like rule or principle that's going to guarantee you never get in trouble and no one's ever mad at you. That's just something you have to give up, right? You have to try to know people as individuals. And like you said, looking at what they've already posted and trying to get a sense for that is a great way forward. I guess this is about being an ally. I think part of it is taking the risk that you might not be received the way you want to and that it has to be okay because you're being the kind of person you want to be and you're doing your best. Yeah. I mean, I think you need to start from figuring out whether you're really doing this for their sake. Mm. And if you are, one of the things that comes with that is being okay with whatever response or non-response you get. Any sort of allyship uh, that is 
you think of as transactional and you're supposed to get any sort of thing in return for it. That's that's not a genuine allyship in my view. And then I wonder too, letter writer, you really thought a little bit more about this. Is your main concern how your Arab friends from from the past who you keep up with in social media are doing? Or is it the actual like more concrete suffering of people who are displaced, who are injured, who are starving, who have lost family members? Obviously, it can be both. But I suspect that your friends would want to know that you care not just about them, but about the underlying issue. And maybe that you have some skin in the game when it comes to trying to solve that. So it's possible that some people might be more touched and encouraged by a public post by you sharing your opinions, sharing what you're doing politically, or in terms of protest to change the situation on the ground than they would by just like a Hallmark card in their inbox saying thinking of you hope all is well. And maybe you could do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think whatever you can do to channel this energy into supporting organizations that are working on this, you know, showing up, uh, to protest politicians who are helping enable this atrocity. You know, there's, there's lots of things you can do that hopefully have some little bit of impact on the situation as best we can have it. And, you know, you, that, 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 that can be something you do on their behalf that, that, that's worth doing regardless of uh, whether they acknowledge it or exactly. not. Exactly. Okay, those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and hopefully helpful. Jay, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Boy, I, I hope I was uh, sufficiently kind and fair to folks. I love giving out advice in private, but this felt like such an awesome responsibility. I was honored to have it. Though. It was worth it for Validate the Valid um, alone. I'll be using my <laughs> columns and I'll be citing a therapist friend of Jay Smooth. <laughs> um, you, can, you can send me their name later if you want. For sure. Follow Jay on Instagram and Twitter at jsmooth995 and at hiphopmusic.com. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks and me, Janae Desmond-Harris, with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your Dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.